Okay, so this afternoon we're studying Luke chapter 6 and looking particularly at verses 43 to 49. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 49. But I'm going to read the whole sermon that Jesus preached, which starts at Luke chapter 20 through to the end of the chapter. I mean, Luke chapter 6, verse 20. I'm going to read Luke 6, 20 through to the end of the chapter. But before we read that, we'll pray. So please join me in prayer. Now, Father in heaven, as we now study your word, I pray, Father, that you would bless me as I speak, that you would help me to speak according to your will and not according to the foolish imaginations of man. And I pray, Father, that you would bless us all as we hear what it is that you have to say to us. Lord, may we be given humble and meek hearts that are willing to receive your word and obey. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting at Luke chapter 6, verse 20, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive... What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. So just trying to get a big picture of this sermon before we... um, or of this sermon that our Lord has preached before we just zoom in on to 
that which we're studying this afternoon. The Lord's sermon appears to be at least loosely structured onto Psalm 1. It's somewhat similar to Psalm 1. It starts off with a statement of blessing and then it goes on to speak about fruit. And Psalm 1 speaks of fruit. And then finally, it comes to a conclusion which is eschatological. Now, the term eschatological refers to the final things, the end, the end of things. Um, it comes to a conclusion that speaks of the end of things, of the future of things. Remembering Psalm 1 speaks of, of, of the wicked, that they're being blown away like chaff in the wind, but the way of the righteous man is known to the Lord and the righteous man will stand in the presence of God and, and the wicked man, it will all come to absolutely nothing. Well, the Lord Jesus finishes with a similar conclusion. I mean, this is where it kind of, you know, sometimes people say things that I don't think they really realise what they're saying. People would like to say things. Now, I've said to you, I don't actually consider this to be the Sermon on the Mount, although I know the material is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but people say things like, oh, I really love the Sermon on the Mount. And that, that's the sum, you know, that's, that's the teaching that I love, those words of Jesus, etc., etc. And you ask them, well, what did Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount? And well, he taught, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he said, judge not, lest you yourself be judged. All right, he, he, he did say those things. You, you've you've managed somehow or other to pick two lines out of a whole sermon and fasten onto something that you thought sounded good to yourself. But at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus finishes with this warning. He basically says, "I have said these things, and if you don't listen to what I'm going to say, eternal damnation is coming your way." You know, you might have fastened onto something that you think is nice and loving and sweet. And I understand that you could say it that way. But ultimately, we're dealing with the things of eternity. And we're dealing with the things um, that for us as mere finite image bearers of the living God, these are the most important things that we can possibly think about, consider, study, seek to apply and seek to obey. And basically, Jesus is saying the one who does not do what he tells them to do, that same one is slated down for destruction. That one has no hope in eternity. That one has no hope in the future. And so the first point to make is who is Jesus claiming to be when he says those things? Well, it's obvious. He's claiming to be the judge. Not only is he the judge, he's claiming to be the standard by which people are judged. A fool recently said publicly, I don't know if you heard him say it, but a fool recently said publicly, I am the science. This same fool had enforced many non-scientific laws and rules and... and, and um, Mandates. Jesus is practically saying, I am the law. I am the righteousness of God. I am the standard by which you will be condemned. You must be seeking to be like me. You must be striving to obey my commandments. And if you are not, you will be judged both against me and by me and according to my words, and you will also be judged by your own words, which will fall short of my words. It's, it's often quoted. C.S. Lewis reduced the possibilities about Jesus to three people. You've probably all heard it, but it's worth remembering. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a madman or he is the devil himself or he is who he said he was. Why did he say that? Well, in, in, in saying these things, Jesus is speaking to us as God. He is speaking to us as one who has divine authority. He is speaking to us as someone whom we cannot question. You know, talking about presuppositions, what's the presupposition that Jesus is making here behind all of these things that he's saying? His presupposition is, 
I have been sent by God. I speak with the authority of God and anyone who dares to disobey me will come under my judgment, will come under the wrath of God. So step back behind that and what's that person saying? I am God, the son of God. If someone is claiming to be God, the son of God, well, that's where you you start to understand those three possibilities that C.S. Lewis threw up. Either that person is entirely mad and to this day, you know, crazy people, people with genuine mental problems come under this sort of divine delusion. You know, I, I remember an interview of a, of a, sports, a sports commentator who had um, ended up in, in hospital being restrained because he was going to harm himself. And the story he told was it was the year 2000, it was the Sydney Olympics, and he had gone to the railway station to catch the train to Sydney. His work was putting him up in a hotel to be one of their chief broadcasters at the Sydney Olympics. He said, I didn't make it to Sydney. And the guy said, what happened? He said, well, it seemed to me as I was standing there on the train platform that I was Jesus Christ and anyone who didn't listen to me was condemned to hell. Now, he understood. He had he had dropped into what you might call a mania or, or a manic state or some kind of mental delusion. It was It was genuine madness. And the next thing he remembers is waking up under sedation, restrained in a hospital and thinking that he's not Jesus. <laughs> That's the madman. Either Jesus is speaking as a madman or Jesus is speaking as one who is turning people away from the worship of the living God. The God who has revealed himself throughout what we call the Old Testament. Jesus is either turning people Jesus is turning people away from that God. Because he's he's drawing as it were, all of our attention and all of our devotion and all of our longing for the presence of God, he's drawing it all to himself. Now, if he's not God, therefore, that would be an act of evil. If he's not mad, if he's not saying these things in a, in a delirium of madness, and if he's not truly God, the son of God, and yet he's turning everybody's attention unto himself and saying, your whole life now revolves around me because you've heard my words. If he is not God, the son of God, well, once again, C.S. Lewis is right. He's setting himself up as an idol and he's setting himself up as a stumbling block between man and God, either mad or a devil or... He is speaking the truth, and if he's speaking the truth, we had better listen because he speaks of the consequence of not listening. It actually doesn't end up in a nice place. You know, there's a there's a child song. As as you know, I, I, I wasn't raised up in a church. I've only ever heard it sung once. But somewhere or other it ends up with the children singing about the house that falls down flat. Yeah, Lisa's smiling. Ellie's smiling. You know the song. I've only ever heard it sung once, but and 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 uh, the boys, especially in that group of little children, when they were singing it, they seemed to really love it. And there was some kind of hand action; their fist was smacking into their hand or something. You know, the house will fall down flat, and they say it with a big smile on their face because they love this idea of the house falling down flat. Well, <laughs> you know, Jesus is not just talking about a house falling over. You know, if you're outside and your house falls over, it's not actually the end of your life. It's okay. You didn't want to lose your house, I'm sure. None of us want to lose whatever it is that we've worked to have built in all our lives. But the simple fact of the matter is if you're outside and your house falls over, it's not actually the worst thing that could happen. If you're outside and your house burns down, it's not the worst thing that happens. If your house catches on fire and you get out safely, it's not the worst thing that could happen. Jesus is talking about our lives, our whole lives. This metaphor of the house, he's talking about everything that you've worked for, everything that you've hoped for, everything that you've tried to make yourself. If you're not listening to my words, this comes to nothing. This comes to absolutely nothing. It will be destroyed because you are not building 
on a foundation of reality. So with that as the introduction, let's just try and work our way um, through the text itself. Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. And then he gives an illustration. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure, out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, seeing as though we're here, let's just jump back to where we were the last time we looked at the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven, etc. I once again make the point. If what Jesus was saying is that in judge not, you are never, ever to make any kind of decision as concerning something being either right or wrong, well, Jesus has immediately spoken in a way that denies what he said just a few sentences earlier. He said, judge not, and you will not be judged. But then at at verse 43 and on, as we know it, he then starts to speak of good trees, bad fruit, bad trees, good fruit, good treasure, evil treasure, good hearts, evil hearts. How are you to know what's a good tree? How are you to know what's a bad fruit? How are you to know what's a bad tree? How are you to know what's a good fruit? How are you to know evil coming from an evil heart or good coming from a good heart unless you actually apply your intellect and discern what it is that is happening before your very eyes or within your hearing? You get my question. You actually have to understand what is going on around you. You actually have to interpret what is going on around you to have any hope of obeying what Jesus is telling us. If you don't, you simply can't. You actually have to take the standards of Scripture, the standards by which Jesus lives and the standards by which Jesus taught, and you have to learn them well enough to be able to apply them and to be able to use them to interpret everything around about you. In other words, you actually have to judge good from bad, light from dark, right from wrong, left from right. You can think of all of the, all, you know, any, any example you want to think of, you actually have to judge. Therefore, if you remember back to what we spoke of when we, when we were studying that portion of scripture in verse 37, we were speaking of judging in a way that would set yourself in the place of God. That is the judgment that we are never to make. We are not to judge as though we ourselves are God, but we are to judge or discern or distinguish between one thing and another according to the revealed word of God. It's not for us to condemn. But my friends, it is for us to choose the way that we live. It is for us to choose that which is right and wrong. It is for us to clearly interpret the things that are around about us. God has not called us to a life of uncleanness and worldliness and and wickedness. That is not what we've been called to. And if we refuse to discern these things for what they are, how do we then live a life of obedience to God's will? We've got to, we've got to, we've got to interpret, understand, discern, or in a certain context of the meaning of the word, we've got to judge the things that we see around about us. And it's interesting that in these examples, Jesus eventually comes to the heart. Verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Jesus knows his Old Testament. Jesus knows, for example, the prophet Ezekiel, speaking of taking out of a person the heart of stone, putting into a person the heart of flesh. In other words, giving a person life in the sight of God, making a person a living, responding image bearer of God as opposed to one who is stony-hearted. And never forget, one of, the, one of the materials from which idols were made was from stone. They are things of stones. Stones don't speak. 
Stones don't hear. Stones don't think. They're just stones. The stony heart, the evil heart. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so, in a way, we're being sort of pressed down upon. The words of Jesus are pressing down upon anyone who hears them. Because when we hear these words, when we hear Jesus speaking of the way that we ought to live and the way that we ought to be, not one of us should be feeling comfortable. You know, you should not read this sermon or the Sermon on the Mount and sit back, cross your legs, and I'm so happy about it. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's challenging his disciples. He's challenging those whom he has called to follow him. He's challenging their every thought. He's challenging their every word. He's challenging their every deed. He's challenging them concerning their heart. He's saying, have a good hard look at yourself. Have a good hard look at yourself. Are you like this person that I'm describing or are you not? And as I've said, not one person who is truly indwelt, awakened, enlivened and made wise by the Spirit of God is going to sit there and comfortably say, well, I've got nothing to worry about because my obedience is just second to none. It doesn't work that way and we all know it. These, these are words that are in a way designed to produce discomfort. They're designed to destroy any hope of works righteousness. Just to destroy it, to push it aside. You know, it, it's, it's a wicked person who out of the abundance of their heart considers themselves to be as righteous as God. It's a wicked person. It's a fool who thinks that they're as righteous as God. When, when a person says, I am as righteous as God, they're not actually speaking themselves up. They're speaking God down. They're blaspheming God. They're reducing God to the level of humanity. And that is evil. And that is wicked. We shall not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. When such a person relies upon their own righteousness, they are denying the very nature of the God whom they claim to have standing before. They are denying him. They don't know God. They don't understand his holiness. They don't understand his righteousness. And they don't understand their own sinfulness. And they're still stuck in, in, the, in this um, cycle of doing evil and of speaking evil and of having ultimately an evil heart. Now, in this context, this word heart, it's not speaking of that bundle of muscle with four chambers that moves the blood through your body. It's speaking of the very depth of your personality, the, the very centre of your personality from where your desires arise. It's speaking of basically what your nature is before God. It's, it's, it's where our strongest desires come from. And it's the change of heart that must happen for a person to actually be born again. It's God who by the power of his Holy Spirit takes out the heart of stone using that Ezekiel picture and replaces it with the heart of flesh. It's God who by the power of his Holy Spirit breathes life where once there was death. You were dead in your sins, but God. The heart is the problem and the heart is at the heart of the problem. And no evil person has the ability to actually change their own heart. Think of it. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And there we read the first eight verses. Romans 8, starting at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot. I'm stressing that. Cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot, can't, are unable to, don't have the power to please God. Scripture tells us, does it not? that when a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven. The whole, the whole um, parable of the prodigal son tells us that when a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven. Well, if there's rejoicing in heaven over the repentance of a sinner, it would be obvious that to repent of your sin would be pleasing to God. Make sense? It's a logical requirement. If, if heaven rejoices at one person's repentance, at one person's salvation, at one person's conversion, if heaven rejoices at one person's repentance, well, then to repent must be something that is pleasing to God. And the Apostle Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Coming back to the things that Jesus is saying about a good heart, good treasure from the heart producing good and the evil person from his evil treasure produces evil for the about, out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. You see the pressure, the pressure that's being put on people who take this seriously. You are being told to be Christ-like. You are being told to be righteous in the sight of God. We are being told that the standard is so high that we can't meet it. And we're also being told that the problem is the heart and we can't change it. Where does that leave you? It should leave you absolutely crushed under the burden of God's demand of perfect obedience. Absolutely crushed with no righteousness of our own. Absolutely crushed realising that we are entirely and utterly helpless and unable to do the things that God desires of us. Absolutely crushed, realising that our heart is not what Jesus is speaking about. It's not the way that Jesus wants, us, wants it to be, wants us to be. And so where do you go from there? What can you do? You can only seek the forgiveness of sins. You can only be acknowledging your complete and utter helplessness. You have no rights. You have no righteousness, I meant to say. You have no righteousness of your own, no holiness of your own. You have nothing of which to boast. You have nothing to lay before God and say, look, see, I did this and it's good. Nothing. Nothing at all. People who take these words seriously, people whom God is calling unto himself, through the preaching of the gospel, those people come under the conviction of sin. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, those people are awakened to their own shortcomings. Those people are made to understand that all we can do is beg God for forgiveness and beg God to give to us the desires of the heart that will bring forth good treasure. Change our heart, awaken our heart, enliven us. We've got nothing that we can rely on but the grace of God. That's the pressure that Jesus has brought upon his hearers. That's the pressure that Jesus has brought upon the whole world whenever and wherever the gospel is preached. He's not offering alternatives. You know, in the gospel of John, he said, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, Jesus said. 
no alternatives. And he doesn't say, your works are the way and your righteousness is the way and your obedience is the way. (laughs) He says, I am the way. And so if we're taking this seriously, we're starting to feel some pressure and it's coming to us from God. We're supposed to start to feel that we are nothing or we have nothing of which to boast. We're supposed to start to feel that we are totally and utterly reliant upon God's grace. At verse 46, Jesus closes with his application. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's one thing to know who God is. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to know who Jesus is. You know, I'm sure if I ask any of you here, you'd say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. I hope you would also add, and he is truly human. He become incarnate. He is truly God and truly man. And it's really good to know all these things. But my friends, the devils know these things and the knowledge makes them tremble. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Once again, you know, you're just supposed to feel crushed. You are honestly supposed to at this moment feel crushed. We call him Lord, Lord. We've, we've so far today, we've sung six songs about him. We call him Lord, Lord. We've prayed. We've called him Lord, Lord. We're attending church. We've called him Lord, Lord. We've read the scriptures. We've read them out loud together. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Nowhere does he say discipleship is easy. Nowhere does he say that following him is as easy as falling off a log, as they say. You know, it's just this nice, easy, you get on the bike and it's all downhill, just pedalling along, breeze through your hair, nothing to worry about, everything's easy. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, think of that, hears my words and does them. Hears my words and does them. We're going to return to that at the, at the end of this message. That's probably, in a way, the most important thing that he said the one who hears my words and does them. I will show you what he's like. He's like the man who puts a lot of work into building. He lays his foundation on the rock. He builds something that is not easily destroyed. The flood that arises. Well, think of the flood that arose in the days of Noah. What was it? It's the judgment of God destroying all that was against God. In the days of Noah, it was the whole earth and all of humanity apart from Noah and his immediate family. The one who hears and does the things that Jesus commands will have a house that stands against the flood, will have a life that stands against the flood. We're not saved by our works, my friends, but we're commanded to do them. That's where... That's where it's so easy for people who would call themselves Christians to go wrong. We're commanded to do works, but we're not saved by our works. And when we do manage by grace to do some kind of good work, we then start to get proud and imagine that somehow or other we're better than those around us. Yet every good thing that we do, we only do by the grace of God. And apart from the work of God and the spirit of God, we wouldn't have done them anyway. And we forget that. I mean, where did this living heart that hears the words of Jesus and does them, where did it come from? Who gave it to you? I wasn't born with one. I know that for sure. You weren't born with it. Who gave you the heart that hears the words of God? Who gave you the heart that is convicted by the words of our Lord Jesus? Who gave you the heart that seeks to be obedient to Jesus? It came from God himself. And why do you want to do the works that please God? Because it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God's work being done in you and through you 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Nothing stands in the judgment that was not built by God. Nothing stands in the judgment that was not built by God, that was not done by God, that has not been approved of by God himself. No person stands in the judgment who has not been made to stand by God himself. No work that we do stands in the judgment unless it was done by God in us and through us. We have nothing of which to boast. Whoever, whoever, like, all right, in this gathering here, who, whoever is the strongest, most godly Christian among us, whoever that person is, that person is there by the grace of God and by the work of God's Holy Spirit. And so that person has nothing of which to boast. And the truth is, whoever is the strongest and most godly Christian among us would probably refuse to be acknowledged as such if we knew who it was. You know, if I could point at a finger and say, well, you're the one, God made you. <laughs> that person would say, you're joking. <laughs> if they're truly of God, born of God, if they're truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they're not going to take any glory to themselves. That's not the nature of a truly godly and humble believer, to take glory to yourself. You give all glory to God. No one's going to no one's going to accept that kind of praise. It's discomforting for a Christian to hear that kind of praise. Pride cometh before the fall, and who can hear that kind of praise without feeling some kind of pride? Only that which God has built through Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit will stand up to the judgment of God and nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. And now, just as I finish, I want you just to consider at verse 47. Jesus said this, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, comes, hears, obeys. They come to the Lord, they hear the Lord, and, and I don't mean that their ears, you know, their, their eardrums were vibrating to the words of a voice. When it says hears, it means they took it in. They, 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 they took it in with understanding and obeys. Think of the things that Scripture tells us concerning the one whom we are to obey. I'm just going to take you through a few Scripture verses. You can follow me along in your Bibles if you want. We're going to start at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses speaking to the nation of Israel after warning the people that listening to fortune tellers and magicians and diviners, etc., is an abomination and that God hates them. At verse 15, he says this to the people. The Lord or Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord at your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. So what does Moses mean? God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. God will raise up one who is a man whose voice you can bear. Moses basically goes on to say you couldn't bear the sound of the voice from the mountain. It was too frightening. It was terrifying. You couldn't bear that voice. And so God rose, rose up myself to speak to you on his behalf. Well, God is going to raise up one like me. And it is to him you shall listen. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, was being set up to wait for one. They're being told to wait. One will come to him you shall listen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50 and start reading. We're going to start reading at verse 4. Now, one is speaking here and the one who is speaking is, is basically our Lord Jesus himself. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back 
to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So he's speaking there of the cross, of his trial. Verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will meet them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And let's just stop there. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? And think of what Jesus had to say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like, etc., etc. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? If we fear the Lord, and fear the Lord is, is, is like a synonym for faith. In the Old Testament, when one fears God, one has faith. One knows God, one loves God, one fears God, knowing what God is like. And the one who fears God obeys the voice of his servant. And who is the servant other than the Lord Jesus himself? He's the one whose back was struck, whose beard was pulled, whose face was slapped and suffered disgrace and spitting. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. It's the transfiguration that we're looking at here. Starting at verse 2 of, of uh, Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So here we have in the Gospels, and it's also recorded later on in the Gospel of Luke. God himself speaking from heaven concerning Jesus and saying, you must hear him. You must come to him. You must hear his words. You must do as he commands. Now, Moses and Elijah were truly great men, truly great prophets. And in the eyes of the Israelites of their day, they were as great a men as were ever born. They, they, were, they were almost, you know, um, you know, sort of the superstitious, superstitious Roman Catholic thing concerning saints. Well, there was almost a similar thing happening in the people of Judah at that time concerning Elijah and Moses. They, they, were, they were like the greatest prophets that the Israelites had ever seen. And God himself tells the disciples, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. You do as he tells you. Okay, that's all very good. How does this come to you and I? Well, let's turn now to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. And there we're going to read from verse 16. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, this is Peter. And he's speaking of the mountaintop experience. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's reminding them of the transfiguration. He's reminding them that he was there, that he heard the voice, that he heard that which was commanded. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, 
to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So stop for a moment and what's he saying? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's saying there's something better than the transfiguration. First of all, the we who heard it is he and the other two disciples who are on the mountaintop. There were three of us there and we heard the voice from heaven. We saw the transfiguration of Jesus and this was a wonderful and most glorious thing. But then he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Even, he says, even that experience, that most amazing experience where our Lord Jesus, as it were, in his flesh, peeled back the flesh and showed us his divinity. He says, but there's something more. We have this word even more fully confirmed. Now read at verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying to his hearers is you've got the testimony of we apostles who saw Jesus transfigured before our very eyes, but not only that, we have taught you the scriptures and we have taught you about the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures, which is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is even more powerful than having seen the transfiguration at the mountaintop. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. My friends, it would, it, it, it's kind of natural I guess for us to think that perhaps if we had seen the transfiguration on the mountaintop, maybe that would have really changed our lives. But Peter is actually saying that we have the scriptures. We have the scriptures. We have the power of God. You have the teaching of the apostles applying the scriptures to your life. And this is more, this is more fully confirmed more strengthening to your faith. This builds you up even more powerfully in your faith. And so, my friends, who are we to listen to? Who are we to go to? Whose words are we to hear? And who are we to obey? And the answer is no man, unless you're speaking of the man Christ Jesus. We are to go to Christ. We are to hear his words. We are to seek to obey them. We are to, by the grace of God, seek the power to be obedient. When we go to hear a preacher, if that preacher is indeed preaching in obedience and is indeed preaching from the scriptures and is indeed preaching according to the scriptures, although you might be hearing the voice of a man, what you are actually Receiving is the teaching of God that has come to us as surely as it has come from heaven. These things are very heavy on any preacher who takes this seriously. You know, there's, 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 there's an enormous responsibility on anyone who seeks to teach the scriptures, to teach the scriptures faithfully according to the word of God and according to the wisdom of God. And that weight can be very, very heavy. But my friends, from the scriptures, through the scriptures, by the scriptures, we have what we need. The scriptures teach us all that we need to know. According to the scriptures, we can go to Jesus and he will by no means cast us out. According to the scriptures, we can hear the words of Jesus. He does speak to his people. He speaks to us when we read the scripture. He speaks to us when we worship. He speaks to us when we worship him by sitting under the authority of his word. He speaks to us day by day, moment by moment. He speaks to his people in the fellowship of the saints. Iron sharpening iron. He speaks to us. And by the power of his spirit, we can do as he commands us. We actually can. I've spoken 
much of how hearing about the righteousness of God according to the teaching that we receive from Jesus crushes us and convicts us that we have no righteousness of our own. But if we didn't have the right desires, it wouldn't crush us. That which crushes us when it comes from God is actually doing us good. It's, it's one of the things that proves that God is working in our hearts. If our hearts were hardened in their sin, we basically would be just pushing this away and saying, so what? I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Who could care less? So what? But we who are in the Lord, our hearts have been made alive. And when God speaks to us of our sins, we're humbled. We're broken down. We're made humble in his presence, which is where we must be. We must be humble. We must fear the Lord. And we must be seeking his help in order to obey him. And so, my friends, who among us fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? If we're convicted of our sins, if these words actually challenge and rebuke us, well, my friends, that's evidence of the work of the Spirit of God. Being challenged and rebuked, that's not what happens in a hardened heart. In a hardened heart, it's kind of like water off a, off, off a duck's back. Easily ignored, easily distracted, the mind easily turned to some other thing so that you can forget about the thing that you don't want to think about. But my friends, God loves us. If we are in Christ, we are the beloved of God. We are of his household. Jesus is the older brother of many brethren. And so for us, these are the words of life and it's eternal life. That which we build in Christ, according to the word of Christ, it will stand in the judgment of God. And though it was God doing the work by grace, he gives us the reward. (laughs) When God gives his salvation to someone in Jesus Christ, he just keeps on giving and giving and giving. You know, those 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 crazy television, television sales ads. But wait, there's more. Well, I'm telling you, my friends, forget about them. But with Jesus It's always, but wait, there's more. There's always more for us. There's always more blessing for we who are in Christ. There's always more of the love of God. There's always more of the work of the Holy Spirit to be done in our lives. My friends, but wait, there's always more. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, Father, that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you have made us alive. You have brought us into your kingdom. You have opened our ears. You have helped us to be the ones among the ones that hear the words of the servant and seek to obey. Father, we ask that you indeed would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we indeed would obey in all things, in our lives, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our marriages. Father, help us to be obedient. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be Christ-like. Help us to do that which we are commanded. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.